Dale, Chamberlain of All Ages, and Walter Payne Radio presents the greatest podcast in the world, The Marketech Samuel Plan, The Devil's Advocate Shinobi, The Lunatic King Maverick, and Single Syllable Mother, The Right Side of the Pond. And of course, if you're not down with that, we got two words for you! Sup, Lords of Pain, and welcome to the... Is that how we do it? Sorry, I'm a bit out of practice, lads. These part-timers coming back here, taking up the spots from hard-working people. <laughs> what are we going to do? You know what I want! What, 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 what I want! What do you want, Maz? Um, I, I really don't know. Have you but noticed how, it's, how it didn't even? It didn't even literally take a second for Mazza to bring the quality of the show down upon his return. After Mav and I had turned this into the classiest podcast on LOP Radio. But you, you need a bit of grime. You need me to dirty it up a bit. I did. <laughs> Never ever say that to me ever again. <laughs> I mean, the only grime, you know, the only grime we really want uh, for, for, from you, Maz, is some, uh, you know, some street cred. Okay, that will do. Shall we bring back, um, shall we bring back, uh, do you really like it? Is it, is it wicked um, as a segment? Theme? Yeah, we, we should do, really, except for the uh, you know, major copyright issues that that possibly would have. I am Apple style. <laughs> well, uh, everybody, um, as you can tell, we're delighted to have Mazza back in the fold. Um, it's delighted been... is a strong word. <laughs> it, it is, but uh, let me kayfabe this out. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, unless you're playing the Ronda Rousey role here, bloody, which case. You, know. <laughs> you mean TRSOCP is not real? It's not been real the whole time? Um. So, yes, sorry, guys, bit of a uh, bizarre show intro from us today, uh, a la 2013, right side of the pond. But uh, it is the post-Fast Lane episode. Um, a few interesting things happened on that show, a few bizarre things, and some stuff on uh, Raw and SmackDown, which uh, pretty much gives us um, our final WrestleMania direction. It's pretty easy to work out what the card is is going to be from this point probably so we'll talk about that we'll talk about some of the things we liked some of the things we didn't like um and we can see what Mazza's take on things is now that he's kind of in the process of catching up uh having done uh, an epic tour of travel lodges across the country so yeah it's been a it's been horrible but yeah i've not really watched much to be honest in in recent months i've caught the royal rumble and very little since then until Fastlane and caught up a bit this week. So um, it, I don't know. It's a lot more palatable when you're not watching it every week. I will say that. That's very true. I mean, I think, you know, we're all advocates of not slavishly sitting down and, and, and watching an entirety of Raw or an entirety of SmackDown. It just they're just not shows that lend themselves uh, to that particularly well. Um, I think Fastlane... The, the thing that stood out, plan. I think I, the first thing I saw from you after I, you know, um, uh, resumed social media. But obviously, I go dark from Sunday night to uh, Monday night on pay-per-view days because I, I, I don't like to watch shows. Spoilers. 
Um, but the first thing I saw from you was that you know the length of the show had crept back mm. up after Elimination Chambers. You know, comparatively um, lean effort. I tell you, on the <clears throat> on the night, it was just so spirit crushing that um, I think I even tweeted out at one point that a hundred minutes, counting the kickoff show, admittedly, but a hundred minutes into the event. I'd watched two wrestling matches. I mean, that's just insane that, you know, inside of 90, you know, one and a half, over one and a half hours, you've seen two wrestling matches, neither of which lasted any longer than 15 minutes. I mean, that just puts into perspective, you know, the amount of crap and fat, trimmable fat that hangs off of these shows. And Fastlane was not only uh, a near four hour show, but it was as if they went out of their way to make it almost four hours. It was like they were going, they, they, it's as if they, they are now sort of chained to the notion that a pay-per-view has to be over three hours long because you had, what was it, three or four Elias segments through the course of the Eesh. night where they basically just sang about what had just happened. Uh, and you had that, that really bizarre one where Randy Orton turned up and somehow AJ Styles knew Randy Orton was going to turn up. And then they thought, because, you know, we've got to cram those two on the show. Uh, and, you know, you had, you know, backstage interviews and all kinds of nonsense going on. And, and you know, there I think there were about four matches with post-match beatdowns that obviously drew things out as well. And, you know, you had, you had matches being booked after the pay-per-view had started. I mean, it was... What Steve and I said, because obviously just recently for Retroshock, we did, well, I say just recently, it'd been a few months back now, we did ha- uh, Halloween Havoc, the year that, uh, I don't know what year it was, the year that DDP wrestled Goldberg. Um, and, you know, I said to Steve on Aftershock that Fastlane was very much a pay-per-view that watched like one of those latter-day WCW pay-per-views in that it was essentially like a glorified episode of TV, really. Yeah, it's... Um... It's pretty, uh, it's pretty bizarre when you think about it in that sense. Um. I mean, there was, there was, you know, I, I'm conscious that I've just started off with a rant, um, but you know, there was still good wrestling on the show. It was just, it was just another unnecessarily long pay per view, and more annoyingly, was more unnecessarily long than I've ever seen it be. Like there was up so much uh, padding in it that it was just baffling to me as to why they put it all in there. I think I watched it in three parts, which is insane. I, I, I watched the first hour live as it was pretty early for us, which was nice. But when it goes that long, obviously that kind of cancels it out. Um, then I watched most of it the next night and then I fell asleep in the main event. So I watched the rest of it the next morning. I think, I think those um, segments where you had, a load of old nonsense happening, the Elias ones and so on and so forth. I found those to be, I mean, really intolerable. In fact, I fast forwarded them all, which is the benefit of watching the next day. You know, I managed to trim a good 40, 50 minutes of the show by fast forwarding that kind of stuff. And also like the amount of replays they had of stuff that had gone on earlier in the show. I mean, Shane McMahon turning on Miz. They must have shown the whole segment about, you know, about 20 times. Which is just completely and not, very, and not very long, And not very long after it had happened either. And then there was a bizarre moment halfway through the pay-per-view where the commentary team started plugging the matches still to come on the pay-per-view as if it was an episode of Raw before the pay-per-view as well. 
Yeah, the whole um, the whole construction and production of the event was um, well. It reminds me of a lot of some of the shows from last year. You know, I think they'd made a step forward in terms of the bloat, um, and then they basically went back to a lot of very bad habits. Um, you, you look down the the card on Wikipedia, and you know, granted it's Wikipedia, so you don't know how much you can trust it, but. There wasn't the longest match on the card was the last match, which was about tw- under 25 minutes long. Most of them were less than 15 minutes. So it's 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 absolutely like I said earlier, it's insane that this show was as long as it was. You know, you could have e- it it would have very comfortably have been a three hour show. It could have comfortably been less than that. They're prepping us for mania. Probably. Yeah. No. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> it's just. It's just really silly, I think, because like for people watching live, they're just they're just killing people's enjoyment of it. Like it's fine, as I say, the next day because you get something you don't really want to bother with, like be it a, a backstage interview or whatever. You can literally just fast forward it, but it's not quite the same, you know. It's not quite the same when you're um, you're there on the night because it's just. You know, you end up with these bits that pad time and and it spoils your enjoyment of the matches when they do turn up, really. I mean, a a big example in here, and this isn't a shot at the match because I thought it was a really, really good match, but the Fatal 4-Way. You know, what was the point when you've done, you know, they pretty much did that on SmackDown last week, wasn't it? That's, That's the exact same match where Joe won the title. And, you know, they've done a tag team match this week and you know what's going to happen at Mania. You know, that's going to be a match that's going to have both floor in it, plus another couple, more than likely, and probably a ladder or something like that. And it's just again and again and again. So why did it need to be on that card? I, I don't I don't know. It's so samey. And, you know, none of it really matters when, you know, did it matter that R-Truth lost the title on SmackDown the week before? When you know when you go into that situation, it don't matter who's the champ coming in, because Michael Colmaths is at stake here. Well, Plan, you mentioned this in your review. Um, there are an awful lot of things that got changed on the fly during the event, or got sort of you know very self-consciously rebooked as the show was going on, um, and it, it did give the sense of like a bit of a half-finished product, didn't it? Uh, yeah, and it doesn't <clears throat> doesn't set a good example, doesn't uh, doesn't fill you with confidence, because I mean we're all WWE guys here. I don't know if I don't think any of us were really watching WCW at the time. Uh, I certainly wasn't. But WWE for so long have spun the narrative of you know by the time that WCW went out of business, there were all these crazy things happening. And the, the concerning thing is, without wanting to, you know, to make mountains out of molehills, that a lot of the traits that they have, in a, in a sort of a, a, a mildly mocking manner, talked about WCW exhibiting in its final years, are now being exhibited by their own company. You know, you've got pay-per-views being changed, as you say, on the fly. You have baits and switches happening during the event. You've got pay-per-views watching like glorified TV. You've got a bloated roster. You've got them signing people by pulling them in with big money deals and then not using them just because they can afford to do it. Uh, and it's it's 
it's you know frightening in that regard. And I think that the fast lane was just another example of a show that demonstrates to me it, WWE's product right now because it's in this weird state of flux where you know it, it, it's almost it would almost be more it would be a relief if it was just all bad or if it was all good. But it's like there's these little gems of good stuff in there. And these little moments where it looks like they've learned their lesson or it looks like they're making progress. Uh, but then it gets counter counterweighted by about three things that are just awful. And so it's this weird situation where you're not really sure or, or it, it, you, it often feels in, in retrospect like, you know, you're bouncing from extreme to extreme on an almost hour by hour basis when you're watching a WWE show. Um, and if anything, that's even more frustrating than, like I say, if it was just if it was all bad. You could just say, okay, I'm just going to take a break and, and you know watch it from a distance until it gets good again. But there's little gems of great stuff going on, um, and I think that it's because they're panicked. I think they, that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of of stuff happening to shake the industry up, and I think that it's it's got their attention. And I think that this is a company now that doesn't seem to know, not necessarily how to combat it, but how it wants to combat it. You know, whether it whether it wants to lean into being more receptive on the fly to what fans want, like with the Kofi Kingston stuff, or whether it wants to continue being the WWE that sort of sticks its heels in, digs its heels in and sticks to its guns, like with the Charlotte stuff. It's, 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 it's a bizarre time to be a WWE fan. I think the thing is, is right. I enjoyed pretty much every match on the card with the exception of the boss and hug um, nonsense, which I thought was, was truly awful. Um, I enjoyed everything on the card. Um, I think what stood out to me, though, was just this strange um, Russo-ish tendency to be writing the show as it was happening. So I think the word that springs to mind to me is heavy handed because they went right ahead with this with this really obvious, painfully obvious Kofi Kingston narrative. Whereby, like, you know, they show up on the pre-show and, you know, Woods and Biggie have their match with Nakamura and Rusev. And then it's like, oh, oh, yes, um, you know, go and wait outside Vince's office and Kofi waits outside Vince's office. And then it's like they played that whole, um, you know, that whole thing where uh, supposedly Vince likes people to come to his office and tell him how it is and, you know, be bold with him. And then Kofi was shown as waiting outside of it. It's like, I've been waiting here for you for ages. And it was, you know, it was so kind of obviously, you know, aimed at that kind of perception of Vince and the brass ring and all that stuff. And it just struck me as, again, an, an example of the, the Brian WrestleMania 30 stuff, but essentially boiled down into a kind of idiot's package. Um, and, and, you know, like, you can't deny that the crowd um, got into it when you kind of have the, the fatal... Uh, sorry, the uh, triple threat later on. Um, but it was just so basic to me and insulting people's intelligence, really. It's a bit like they could have got to this Kofi situation without necessarily, like, just tick, doing, like, a tick box of barriers, you know? It, it's, it's a shame because the story had the potential to be much more interesting than just a retread, and the way they've done it, they've kind of just made it a retread. I like it. <laughs> hey, guess who's back? Um, yeah, I, I, I liked it. You know, I, I really did. I, I think 
this Kofi thing again, you know, I've not been watching very closely. I've not been watching much at all, but obviously I've been following. Um, but this this whole Kofi momentum is seems to be something that's come out of pretty much nowhere, you know. It's it and it's something that they've committed to quickly. And I like that, which makes me think is in a way they probably were going for this all all the way along because they tend not to do that on the fly. But you know, I guess they're probably you know, it's not Brock Lesnar, so you know Vince is probably more open to it when, when it's the champion on the other brand. Um, however, you know, I I really like what they've done with Kingston, and I think they've nailed it spot on from from what I can see from from the get go. You know, I, I I like the swerve. You know, obviously there was a swerve coming, but I thought they played it really well, and it's it, it's really good tv i'm i'm finding out i thought kofi kingston cut the best promo of his career on smackdown this week i think the thing is is that from elimination chamber onwards like i think up to the end of elimination chamber they they played it perfectly um actually you know the the smackdown after elimination chamber uh elimination chamber i think they played it perfectly where they started to mess it up was this whole let's use this kevin owens now let's introduce mustafa ali and suddenly it's like owens is a face that's taking the face that people want to see's place in the main event. And Mustafa Ali is the guy that would have had Kofi's spot in the gauntlet had he been fit. So now let's put him in that match and make people, you know, and I know they got behind Ali by the end of the match because he's so damn good, but I thought they were hanging Ali out to dry in a big old way by sticking him back in that situation, which I think it's, well, it's just clumsy. I think that's what I, that's what I object yeah, to. It's, it's, I mean, I thought Steve phrased it well enough, Chuck. He said that uh, they basically turned Ali into Rey Mysterio in 2014, you know, when Rey came out as number 30 in the Royal Rumble that year when everyone wanted it to be Brian. Um, my issue with it, with it all, isn't that WWE have, have leaned into what the fans have decided they want, but that they've leaned into it, as you've just said, Marv, in a clumsy way, in a, in a sort of tone-deaf way, and they've, they've demonstrated in my mind... Um, their sort of recurrent and bizarre habit to adapt, but not adapt very well, um, because they did run a very big risk in doing what they did uh, at Fastlane, because, you know, I don't understand if you weren't going to have Kofi in that match, in that title match, why you would then decide to instead squash him in a handicap match that wasn't booked originally against the bar, it, you know, I mean, I could see the intent there. It just it felt unnecessary and a bit silly. And again, it, it lengthened the pay-per-view unnecessarily. And it meant that when they got to the WWE title match, that's why the risk of, you know, of, of the fans, quote unquote, hijacking it uh, increased because they didn't signal the obvious intent uh, that, Kofi, that they basically put off Kofi's title match till WrestleMania. They put booked Kofi in a number one contenders match against Ali or something. You know, like there were more effective ways to adapt to this situation rather than doing this kind of weird one foot in, one foot out adaptation that they tried to do where it's like, well, we're going to kind of stick to what we'd originally planned, but in this weird kind of roundabout way where we're sort of doing what the fans want, but sort of not doing what we don't want to do. And, it, and, and I think, and but I, I'm also annoyed at the fact, and we sort of spoke about this last week, Mav, that, uh, that they've, They've tried to, and you were touching on it, I think, they've, they've tried to turn this into 
you know, Daniel Bryan 2.0, because this was never, ever, ever about how Vince McMahon didn't want Kofi Kingston to be WWE champion. This is this isn't a Bryan story. This is an Eddie Guerrero story where he's been around for years and years and he's always had that fan support and he's always had that sentiment and he's never been able to reach the top. And yet because it's WWE, they're unable to anymore, at least conceive of an underdog story that doesn't involve the McMahons or an authority or, you know, the this weird uh, reality era light approach where they try and, and just rehash another old hit. I mean, let's talk about the McMahons a minute, because, uh, you know, when we kicked off the new year, we were very much discussing this idea of, you know, whether what they said in December was actually going to hold true. Like, were they really going to stay out of things and, you know, inverted commas, like, do what the fans wanted, or were we just going to end up with there? It seems pretty convoluted because you've had Triple H and Steph get overruled by Vince. You've got Triple H in a babyface storyline against a heel Batista. You've got Steph flip-flopping all over the place when it comes to to Rousey, Charlotte and Becky. Um, You've got Shane McMahon, who was in a buddy cop tag team with Miz, then turn on him, which, you know was inevitable, really. Uh, you know, we talked about the leg out of the leg um, aspect of it last week. Um, and so even in the McMahons, there's no internal consistency whatsoever because they're all just kind of, you know, they're just it's just all over the place what they actually are. They're not a unified front. They're not, they don't seem to have the, the consistency of character they've had in the past. It just seems really, really... I mean, to use your phrase, plan, like, tone deaf. Like, nobody was asking for, for more McMahons, but not only have got more oh. McMahons, you've got the most confusing McMahons I think we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, that, that all worked until, like, they all went to the carve their own path to WrestleMania. So, and uh, I think the funniest thing is pretty much every single one of them has said, screw what the fans think, when that was the whole premise of their change in the first place. Yeah. I mean, what do you? I mean, what do you think about this whole um, that the use of the Mantis authority figures again plan? I, you know, I mean, it's hard to say anything original about it. Really, that hasn't been said before because it is just a company that's out of ideas. You know, I mean, I've said I've said for a long time now that that we've reached the end of the company's creative evolution you know there's there's no further steps that they can take to make them fresh again they have to go back to basics um rather than you know rather than trying to fight because at the minute are we okay is someone's rustling paper so that sounds like uh mass is making some ikea furniture <laughs> i've been doing that a lot recently um yeah. So anyway, as as I was saying, you know, there's, they, it's clear they've run out of ideas. There's no new places they can go. They have to revert back to basics at this point to freshen the product up. You know, we don't need the McMahon's running around in this day and age doing the tired old McMahon stuff. You know, we don't need heel Shane McMahon. We don't need the authority. We don't need Vince McMahon on TV. This is, you know, and and no. It's a similar issue, if not the same issue, as with the part-timers, in that it feels all very much like they've started to believe far too much of their own hype. 
and this, you know, this bizarre notion there are no stars, so we need to plaster the McMahons to pump ratings up and all the rest of it, you know, and, and we're actually doing the company a favour by being on TV, and people should be thankful for it. The stars should be thankful that, you know, Kofi should probably be thankful that Vince McMahon is getting involved in segments with him to make it. You know, it's BS. I'm not saying that's the mentality, but that's how it comes off sometimes. No one wants to see Vince McMahon in 2019, full stop. Nobody. And I, and I think, you know, the, the, that is the main thing about this show, right, is that the road to WrestleMania, after Elimination Chamber, it looked pretty clear. Like, we said it's too long. That's what, that's part of the problem. Like, the time between the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania is far, far too long. But even with that said, it seemed like they knew where they were going with things. You know, like, they'd made this audible on Kofi, which was the right decision, um, you know, they had Brock and Brock and Seth locked in. They had the triple threat between uh, Rousey and Lynch and Flair. Like, however they decided to get to that, you know, it was there. Um, they had this Miz Shane thing, which obviously no one wants to see, but they were determined to do so kind of whatever. Um, and then they seem to have found ways to make it as, as muddy and as, you know, sort of heavy-handed as they possibly can. So let's let's have a look at the um, that women's triple threat because Plan, you wrote a column on Sunday <laughs> um, where you literally just wrote out all of the twists and turns. <laughs> and, and when you do that, it makes 1999 Vince Russo look like <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock. Like it's it's actually ridiculous, it's crazy, isn't it? it? Like all of the yeah. different things. I mean, even Becky acknowledged it on SmackDown this week. She came out and said. Um, you know, I was suspended and then injured and then suspended again. And then she, she kind of listed what's happened to her since she won the Rumble. And you just kind of go like, what on earth? Well, this is, yeah, this is what I was saying earlier. This is why I, I get the, I, when I watch WWE at the minute, I'm getting the impression that they're a panicked company who aren't sure what to do because it seems like they're throwing every single possible idea out there and doing it in the hopes that they hit, you know, in the, in the hopes that makes for a good product or an exciting product or an edge of your seat product. And in fact, it just convolutes stuff. The Becky Lynch, Ronda Rousey story was the simplest thing on planet earth. You know, Ronda, uh, Becky wins the Royal Rumble, challenges Ronda. It's a match. Everyone wants to see. They mouth off against each other for a few weeks. Then they wrestle literally all you needed to do. But because it's WWE, and even if you know, even if they wanted Charlotte in it, it still it was still very easy to do that. I mean, ultimately Becky was never supposed to be in the Royal Rumble, so Charlotte immediately had an in-universe gripe that could legitimately have just inserted her into the match, you know. But instead, it's WWE not being able to get out of their own way, and as a result, overwriting and overproducing what should have been a very simple. Uh, storyline and now the the same thing has, has has happened I think with the Kofi Kingston situation is again it was very simple you know you set him up for a Wrestlemania title match you bring the Kevin Owens thing forward and do it at Fastlane you could do those two things at the same time everyone's happy there's no stress fans aren't hijacking anything but again it's it's WWE getting in their own way because they book the Kofi Kingston match then they take it off and then they do Owens who's actually a face but he's doing a heelish thing, and then Owens comes out, and then Ali's added into the match after we were teased that he'd be Kofi because Kofi's in a handicap match, and now Kofi's going to get an opportunity, but first he has to win another gauntlet match that he also won several weeks ago to get into the chamber for a title opportunity, you know, and it and it's it's just 
maddening because it, they, they take these very simple stories and just needlessly conflate them. And as a Seth fan particularly, I'm kind of relieved as a result in a, in a weird way. They've made me thankful for the fact that Brock Lesnar isn't around every week because that's one storyline they haven't been able to overcomplicate because there's no bugger around to overcomplicate it with. And also, I mean, um, Seth has benefited as well from the fact that he had a keep-busy storyline ready-made yes. for him with the Shield. And you see, this is what you need to do if you're going to have this, um, if you're going to have this vast period between the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, then. God damn, your Rumble winner had better have a keep busy storyline. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. Like, so that's what um, the issue has been for a lot of these guys over the years. Is that I mean, I'm a, I'm a Sheamus in particular, like literally floundering around, not doing anything between winning the Rumble and WrestleMania and Daniel Bryan because there was nothing for him to do. So yeah, Seth has certainly benefited not only from the fact that Lesnar's not there, but also that fact that he had that kind of um, sense of purpose given him by the Reigns return. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said about WWE that we're at a stage now where um, it's like you, you talk about one issue and how it can be resolved. And then all it does is present five more issues uh, with the product at the same time. And this is one of them, isn't it? Is that you've got this, uh, the women's triple threat match, you've got this this feud that has been needlessly overcomplicated to, to such a convoluted extent that I've lost all interest in it and I'm just waiting for it to be over at this point. Um, which is a shame for me to have been driven to that cynical stage by a company that can't get out of their own way. And you go, okay, well, the reason for that is because they've had this, I counted the other day, It was te- it's te- been 10 weeks a 10-week period between Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, which is crazy. Um, and so they've had to fill this, you know, they've had to fill two pay-per-views and 10 weeks of TV with storyline material before you get to the to the match you've booked coming out of Royal Rumble, uh, which presents the other issue, which is something you've written about recently, Marvin, we've talked about on the show recently, which is the whole format and structure of WrestleMania season uh, that has been in place now since, well, the dawn of monthly pay-per-view, really, um, without WWE being able to adapt and, and change with the times and say, okay, maybe, you know, maybe we ought to look at redesigning WrestleMania season and bringing WrestleMania closer to the Royal Rumble or, or scrapping the two pay-per-views in between or moving Royal Rumble closer to WrestleMania or doing something to switch up so that you don't get presented with the problem of how you fill 10 weeks of TV between crowning a Royal Rumble winner and getting them to their WrestleMania title match, which, as you say, Mav, has more times than not in recent years uh, proven to be the downfall of a full-timer challenging for a title at WrestleMania, whether it was Del Rio or Sheamus or Shinsuke. You know, and I think that, in turn, feeds into WWE's deluded attitude that these failings occur because there are no stars anymore, rather than these failings occur because there are crippling issues with the uh, with the environment in which our product has, continues to try and function but fails. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good way good way to sum it up. So, I mean, let's um, erring on the more the more positive side. We know that the framework of the storylines and um, you know and the booking isn't necessarily what it should be, but there was some very good professional wrestling that took place on that show. And it's easy to get caught up in the, um, you know, obviously in the negatives of, of the way in which it's presented to us. But I mean, I mean, what do you guys think of, of, uh, of, of some of the action? I mean, 
uh, let's take, for example, the uh, the tag triple threat, which to me oh. seemed to be, you know, one of the better main roster tag matches I've seen in a, a good while. I loved it. It was it was revival back to being the revival. You know, it was a really innovative tag match. I thought, you know, they were doing different things in there, and you know, obviously Ricochet is insanely talented in that kind of setting and you know you've got gable as well i mean just the that that little bit of action between gable and ricochet was like oh mouth watering uh made, made you want some more and top guys doing top guy stuff in the middle of it you know it didn't all come off perfectly but you know they took a lot of risks there and it's you know there are always going to be a couple of bits that aren't quite as smooth as they, they'd want it to be uh, I, I really enjoyed that match, and it, it had me wanting them to go again with a ladder at Mania. To be honest, I'd be happy to watch that match, that very match again. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, no ladders. Um, yeah, I, I am with Maz though in saying that I thought it was a great match. It was one of the three matches I talked about on uh, SCID this week in my uh, performance art review, and what I said there was that what I loved about it first of all was that it was a raw tag time match that made the made card you know and i can't remember the last time that happened um that was given time to really do something as well which was great to see uh, uh, and quite managed to be among i thought the best examples of a triple threat uh, tag match because it did keep things quite basic but what i loved about it was that because you had the revival who are very much rooted in uh, tag team wrestling tradition you know they are the quintessential career tag team against two teams that are that are or were essentially single stars brought together into a team but that have molded into really great teams i mean i love gable and uh, gable and rudin they've finished their neck break moonsault finish and i think ricochet and alistair black have turned out to be a, a really compelling team to watch because of the the stark differences in their two styles and characters um and so you had you know, you you had um, this, well, I called it on SCID, a hymn to tag team wrestling, you know, because you had traditional tag wrestling, you had uh, improvised tag wrestling, you had teams that have been on a journey in, in how to become a tag team, and they were wrestling this really great, that started off basic, you had the face of peril and the hot tag, and then ended with the kind of frenetic style that we see in abundance since Revival's big run in NXT, and going back even further since The Shield made it fashionable in their six-man efforts as well. Um, there was great use of space, lots of action. I liked some of the some of the sort of the, uh, like when Gable tagged himself in his ricochet, did the leap over the ring post and little moments like that were all cool. Great sequence in the middle with the German to the frog splash to whatever the hell ricochet did. Um, you know, it was, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And it, it, it kind of, uh, you know, excited me about the idea of, you know, what might come for the revival at WrestleMania? I think hopefully not involving ladders. <laughs> I think they've, I think they, I think, you know, these teams have certainly uh, bargained their way onto the, mess, onto the WrestleMania cards. If not the main card, then certainly, um, you know, then certainly the, uh, the pre-show. I mean, I think given that the Usos have retained those, those uh, SmackDown titles, uh, I wouldn't think they're making the main card because obviously they're doing this, this Shane V, um, yeah, quite shame v Miz thing. Um, With a face Miz. Yeah, I know, right? But we, we I think we'll, there are some things that are better not talked about. Um, 
<laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think they, these teams have certainly earned themselves onto the Mania card in some way, shape or form. I thought it was a fantastic match. What I really appreciate, because I find triple threat tag matches frequently to be a bit awkward because of the fact that only two teams can be legal at once. Um, I tend to much prefer them when they're tor- well, not really tornado, when all three teams can be in at the same time. Um, but what I really liked was that they use the fact you can tag in any other team incredibly intelligently. So the Revival in particular were always tagging in the nearest person to them, like in the knowledge that they were exhausted and therefore in danger of being pinned and losing the match. And to tag in somebody fresh was was to kind of stay in the game for a bit longer. And I thought that kind of long-term strategy just played so well into Revival's characters Um that I just I just thought that was absolutely brilliant, and I I really um, thought that their the finish with the the shatter machine out of nowhere was just a thing of absolute poetry, and and should be a reminder of everything that that uh, the revival are capable of. I could have done without the whole, you know, um, black and ricochet beat them down at the end mm. thing. I thought that was a bit like look, oh, yeah, you don't have to give your new shiny toys. Um, you know, you don't have to book them to lose and then have them get their own back. Like, that's one of the things I really hate about faces in WWE generally. Like, Cena was always guilty of this. Like, if Cena lost a match, he'd then, like, beat the person up afterwards. Um, I, I hate that stuff. It's like, you you know, if you're gutsy enough to have your faces lose in that situation, just have them lose. It's okay. Like, it doesn't show them as weak if they don't beat the other well, person can, up afterwards. You can blame the click for that. Well, there's a lot of things you could play the click for. That's <laughs> right. another a long podcast for another day, perhaps. Um, like Ronda Rousey saying it's all fake. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess Sean did open Pandora's box in that kind of late 97 run a little bit, didn't he? Um, all right, so, yeah, I mean, we've talked about the fatal four-way for the US title a little bit already. I thought, given how lightweight fatal four ways are they essentially just decided that they would wrestle something really frenetic and fast-paced and fun um and i appreciated it for that like got out of business in 10 minutes i thought it was kind of oh it added quite a lot to the card myself i uh, you know i guess my my only real issue with it is that we live in an age where automatic championship rematches aren't a thing and yet here you are with a direct rehash of the title match that was on SmackDown Live in which Joe won the title, even though there was no Intercontinental title match on the entire card. Yeah, and I, and I think the other thing to say is that obviously they booked this on the fly, didn't they? Because it was meant to be Ray V Andrade in the pre-show. And then like they had this whole thing where Samoa Joe basically walked around saying, I'll take on anyone, don't really care, they, they can join well, my match. Yeah, the story was that he asked for the match, which kind of plays nicely into his character, and I do, I do kind of dig that. Uh, I think I could have just done without, uh, you know, like I say, because again, it's just deeply unimaginative. It's just, it's just, it's, it's lazy writing, man. It's so inexcusably lazy. What's the point in it being on paper? And again, you know, this is nothing about match quality. It was a fantastic match, uh, but you know what what was what was the point in it you know what how, how is that trying to sell a pay-per-view we're just going to do what we did on smackdown again you know and probably what we're going to do some variation of for the next three four weeks anyway you know all over tv so yeah. you know in terms of that what's the point 
you know, I guess the point is, uh, you know, Andrade is fantastic and Samoa Joe is too. And, you know, Ray looks far better than he has done in such a long time. And even Truth hung in, in that in that environment. So, you know, it was entertaining, sure. But how memorable is it going to be in, you know, even a month from now, not even a year? Well, this is... This is another issue, isn't it, is that we've now become, we've conditioned ourselves, and I think every WWE fan is guilty of this, especially those of us who write columns and do podcasts. Uh, We've conditioned ourselves into, you know, hell, I wrote a whole book on it, you know, into making the, the most out of a bad situation and kind of settling for the little tidbits of good stuff that they give us and looking at silver linings rather than saying, actually, no, it's lazy and you shouldn't be doing it. And, um... You know, one of the things that struck me about Fastlane overall is that there was a germ of an excellent pay-per-view that got completely overburdened by WWE's bad habits and the unnecessary fat. And one of the one of the signs of that to me was I sat and watched that match, which, as you say, was a fun match. Um, but it was, and you kind of just sort of in a roundabout way almost touched on it, Maz. You know, I was sat there and I was thinking, as good as this is, if you took away one of WWE's most prevalent issues, which is the lingering of unnecessary uh, talent, this bloated roster that beyond anything else is being weighed down by guys whose prime is in their past. I, you removed R-Truth and Rey Mysterio from this match. You ended up with Joe versus Andrade. Like As good as it was, it would have been even better that way. And so again, you've got the germ of something excellent being weighed down by WWE's bad habits. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I, I think, you know, the other thing, like we say, is they, they decided on a, what their US title match would be and what their pre-show match would be. And then they melded the, the whole thing together in in pre-production, which just seems just seems really, you know, to be a, a, an odd decision. Um, and like when you combine it with stuff like, you know, that handicap match with the bar and which was like really heavy handed. Um, yeah, it, it, and the fact that they kind of, devoted so much time to this shape man versus Miz storyline that surely only um only Vince is interested in just just means that um for, you know like because there were a lot of good matches on the cards you know I mean let's talk about um you know Brian Owens Nally let's just leave aside all of the problems in the um the storytelling and the construction of the the match in the first place but if you if you you know in isolation, watch that match with no knowledge of anything that had gone up to it, then you said, what a fantastic match. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm... Uh, one, one, of, one of my biggest annoyances um, at my being so busy to really watch anything over the last few weeks is missing out on Brian at the moment, you know. Fickle! <laughs> yeah, it, it's very fickle. Um, but, you know, obviously I'm a huge Brian fan. I sat through that first bit of the comeback, which, you know, let's, let's face it was pretty, yeah. Uh, and now he's really hitting home runs character wise. And, you know, as you know, Owens is also one of my favorites. So seeing Owens coming back as a, as a face in the short term, which I, I don't, I don't see it sticking for very long. He just... It's just not him, is it? And uh, not that I think he's done a bad job of it, by the way. It's just he just is a heel. Um, but yeah, I, I was very excited about the prospect of these two fighting, and then obviously 
uh, we, we had the swerves and stuff, but the the match itself was very good. You know, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Ali added a, and you know, I, I think I would have rather it have been a one on one match. Particularly, I, I think the added of Ali was just so that Vince could do that swerve. I don't think Ali would have been in this match had it not been of say, oh, if we do this, we could say that. Who should we add to it? Oh, Ali's back. Let's put him in here. I mean, I disagree a little bit because they ended the last SmackDown Live with Ali coming out and doing a run-in at the end of Kevin Owens' match with Eric Rowan. So there was a sign on right. the go-home SmackDown that he'd be he'd be match. I mean, for me, the issue is, I mean, the match itself turned out phenomenal. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It was, you know, it won the crowd over uh, when they were sort of trying to, although I think their heart really wasn't in that little rebellion because I think everybody knew at that stage that Kofi was being held off for WrestleMania. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it won them over nonetheless. And I, but I, I feel like Kevin Owens, you know, who obviously infamously on this show, I go hot and cold <laughs> a lot, um, had this great opportunity at hand to come back completely refreshed. You know, the character kind of altered, uh, wrestling seemingly as a baby face, um, you know, getting uh, originally getting a, a big WrestleMania title match, but nonetheless, that title match being moved forward, being able to potentially overcome the kind of derailing and, and burying of his career that he was starting to suffer when he went out with injury last year. Um, and because they 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 kind of booked a Kofi match, then changed their minds and turned it into an Owens match with only two weeks to build the match with Brian. Um, at least one week of which Kofi was still hanging around it, I feel like Owens already feels flat as a result, um, character-wise. Uh, you know, that he hasn't been able to come in with any forward momentum, with any forward motion because of the, the lingering Kofi issue and because WWE didn't just hold off on it. Yeah. I mean, this is what I said. I did it at a later time. And I, and I think the same thing with Ali as well, you know, that Ali was healthy, great, fine. Um, there was no need to, to rush it and, and crowbar him into this match at Fastlane when it would have been wiser to, you know, find something for him to do until after the Kofi thing was over, after WrestleMania, let him get some of that, uh, for lack of a better word, some of that heat back that he'd garnered since his debut on SmackDown Live and then pulled the trigger on the title challenge. Because, what I, again, what I said on SCID and on Aftershock is that there, there was such a phenomenal story happening with Ali that night. And WWE never even mentioned it, which is a year prior, he was wrestling on a network show no one was watching to get on the kickoff of WrestleMania. And one year later, simply through his work ethic, he's wrestling for the WWE title and in universe could potentially walk into the biggest show of the year with the biggest championship on his shoulder. Like that is an incredible story. And yet it was given away for nothing and never even mentioned. I mean, I, I would not have had Kevin Owens anywhere near the company until after WrestleMania, because, you you know, you want a big event, you know, on your post WrestleMania TV shows, Kevin Owens returns like, you know, it, it, it writes up. And then if you want to do this whole I'm an every man, you know, thing they're doing with him baby face wise, which, you know, I, I think he could make work given time. Um, then you got, you know, you, you have the potential of that working. I just think they've rushed so badly with him. Um, and once Ali did go out with injury, I would have held off on him too. I'd have put him in, you know, I'd have put him in a mid-card match with Andrade or I'd have 
put him in the Andre Battle Royal, have him win the Andre Battle Royal, for goodness sake. Um, and then you start fresh with Mustafa Ali after WrestleMania, and come next WrestleMania, I'll be looking to pull the trigger on him properly. Yeah, I mean, what, what they've done with Owens, I, I think it was probably pretty obvious at this point that he was going to be the guy to wrestle Brian at Mania, and Kofi was the one that put that spanner in the works. And then they they just decided, let's bring him forward rather than, you know, like what Mav said, hold him back. You know, have Kevin Owens come out and beat up Seth or Kofi or Brian the day after Mania, or Brock Lesnar. The day after Mania would have been, you know, huge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I you know, I, I'm in agreement with everything that's being said. Fantastic. So let's let's um, let's have a look then. Let's end on a on a positive note. Let's talk about uh, the Shields. What we assume is the Shields farewell um, uh, against uh, Corbin Lashley and McIntyre. Now I really liked your phrase that you used in your column plan because it's exactly the one that I had in mind when I was watching the match, um, which was that it was a greatest hits, and you had everything yes. from the from you know obviously the triple power bombs through the table you had ambrose running the announce table to jump on people um you had seth jumping off stuff uh roman reigns doing you know crazy athletic things drive bys and so on and so forth um you know they had the teamwork that the thing they do the rabid thing where all three of them start just like you know piling on somebody and like beating them down it kind of just had absolutely everything even the very 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 old school coming from three sides of the ring thing, which I hadn't seen them do in a, in a good while to memory. Um, so yeah, I just thought the whole thing was very emotional. I felt incredibly, I, I'd say I'd go as far as I felt a bit tearful watching it really. Um, oh, absolutely. And it was, it was a wonderful way to say goodbye. And for their part, I thought Lashley and Corbin and McIntyre did their job. No pun intended. Um, incredibly well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was it was very emotional talking about it uh, for my performance art review on Wednesday on on sports entertainment is dead um, because obviously this is a group that has meant a lot to each one of us on this show particularly, um, and so to see that and it was such a singular uh, presentation because I can't remember ever before seeing in 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 any wrestling. Um, you know, at, at such a self-conscious presentation of this is the end of this group's story. Like how many factions lived out their life with the same uh, the same lineup beginning to end, and how many of them then were afforded the opportunity to play the greatest hits of their time together as a group, uh, and to sort of have their curtain call as a group intact despite having gone through, you know, the, the betrayals and whatnot, which, which only served, you know, I mean, the, the, the underlying fiction underpinning everything that this group has been through over the years. A hug after the triple powerbomb when they'd won, all the more emotional. Uh, like you say, it was, it was a greatest hits. But one thing I noted on SCID was that it was, it, it, to me, it felt like the second line in a rhyming couplet as well, because the match... The specific, you know, you could break it down into its component parts, like you say, you know, Seth jumping off the crowd and, and the triple powerbomb through the table and whatnot. Um, 
but the, the structure of the match was very evocative of the first match against Evolution at uh, Extreme Rules in 2014. And what I love so much about that is the poetry of, you know, the, the first match against Evolution was the beginning of the end of the Shield because that was the feud that brought Shield the Shield to an end when Seth betrayed them. Uh, and this time you get a very similar match, but with the happy ending, you know, with the with the ending inverted. And so I I, I really loved that about it more so than anything. I thought that that legitimately they looked better than they ever had. Um, you know, this wasn't about. And and people have sort of I've seen uh, not not many but I've seen a couple of people point to the fact that the the opposition wasn't very convincing, you know because Corbin Lashley and McIntyre are frankly a cringeworthy group to have to endure, um, but this was never really about them coming up against a unit as strong as they were or coming up against a team as strong as they are as much as it you know it wasn't about the opposition across the ring from them as as much as it was about them overcoming the opposition amongst themselves. Because this whole match was generated with Roman forcing, you know, forgiveness between Dean and Seth again. Um, and I, I, for what it's worth, I thought that was all done in a very sensible and logical manner that stuck true to their characters in typical Shield form. Um, and I thought the performances they they legitimately looked better than they ever did. They seemed as they seemed to be smoother than they ever had been. They seemed to be, uh, you know, more energized than we'd ever seen them. I mean, when Seth was shouting one more motherfucking time, you could tell that they were very much living that moment there and then, and that this probably really was the last time that we'd see them, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and and you know, they seemed to be more in sync than ever before. And Roman's performance, particularly, to me, seemed to be. Uh, better than I'd ever seen him. And, you know, I mean, just everything about it was just magnificent. The the immediate context, the long-term context, the structure of the match, the design of the match, everything about it was magical. Yeah, it was fantastic. I, I don't think I could quite go into that much, uh, that level of uh, love for it. it. It was just a really good Shield match. Uh, can't really add anything to that. I mean, so I mean, it, it, it's the, the what happened next. That, uh, it's the what happens next, which is the thing. Like you say, it really did feel like a, a send off. So, you know, uh, as did potentially uh, Raw. Yeah, I was about to uh, say about that. So, I mean, that was a fantastic, um, I mean, uh, another oh. another brilliant match in a library of, of brilliant Dean Ambrose matches. Um, and, you know, brilliant for setting up what seems to be McIntyre v. Reigns, which was actually the match that I pitched for Reigns when he first announced his comeback. Like Doc said, who do you want to see him face? And I was all in on him um, facing McIntyre, particularly in the sort of um, the form that McIntyre has been in um, since him and Ziggler first got together um, last summer. I, I think I think that would be a fantastic mid-card WrestleMania match. And another one, another mid-card match that's a story without a title, which I think would be uh, a step forward. Although, of course, you know, it does it'd be another match to add to the 33 matches already happening, which would um, definitely put us in eight-hour WrestleMania territory. But uh, I guess you take you take the, uh, the good with the bad on that one. Um, but, yeah, I thought... It certainly seems pretty conclusive that that, um, that was the end of Dean Ambrose, but there is still the, a lot of talk out there that um, Reigns in particular is doing all he can to uh, to persuade um, Ambrose to stay. Uh, so I guess we'll, we'll wait and see on that one. It wouldn't be the first time that um, a contract running down 
ended up <laughs> going to the last minute, so to speak. Um, yeah. It'd be amazing um, if what they. Worth... I was just say it'd be amazing if they could uh, let everyone think Ambrose is leaving, and then I don't know, like have him turn up at the end of Rollins's celebration or something to portray him all over again. That would be uh, well, something. I think, I, I think whatever happens at WrestleMania, if Ambrose makes an appearance, it ought to be one that's in keeping faith with the happy ending we saw at Fastlane rather than time for more kind of uh, intrigue amongst them. Uh, I, I'm not sure how well that would work so close to Fastlane. But what I would say is that, that I think it's it's still too soon to be saying that is absolutely the last we'll see of him because there's still three weeks to go before WrestleMania, three weeks TV to go before WrestleMania. Um, and, you know, it may be that Dean doesn't appear again. It may very well be that that's the last we see of him, but it may not be. And like you say, I mean, it was very interesting how much they kept referencing the fact that yeah, his, I thought that. it was his last match. And if you listen, Ket Cole, I thought did a, for once did a brilliant job in the closing moments of the show when he was talking about, you know, the end of one era and the beginning of another Rollins moves on to WrestleMania. What's happening next with Reigns? And he, and he very, to me, very notably said, Am- Dean Ambrose's future uncertain. Um, so there's, you know, ultimately that's the company speaking through the commentary, yes. whatever the commentators are saying stuff. So there's obviously some uh, desire still in WWE to do what, what needs to be done to keep him. There was a, a report that came out, I think, earlier today that said that they'd come back to him with a bigger money offer that he'd still rejected it, but they're obviously trying. Um, And you could tell, I think, that the whole decision to reunite the Shield for that match was probably in itself an attempt to woo Dean into staying. Um, And so you don't know, you know, like I said, there's still three weeks and in wrestling, that's a lifetime. So, uh, and it very well may be that this is, you know, I mean, there's still the theories that it's a work. We don't know, ultimately. And, you know, that's that's the that's the end point of the conversation, really, I think, is is that we just don't know. Have him show up, uh, you know, in a trench coat with a lead pipe like Roddy Piper during the Rollins match and hit Brock Lesnar. <laughs> well, I mean, what, 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 what? he'd probably do it in the Shane Miz match and hit Shane instead for <laughs> some mad unknown reason because the McMahons want the... The Mars want all the big storylines for themselves. I mean, what I would say is that I, you know, as a, as as a, I mean, after Seth, Dean is is probably my favorite in the company. So I, and I and I have grown to be very attached to his career as well over the last few years. Uh, and so I, you know, I would like to see him have a match at WrestleMania. It would be a shame to me to not use him on that card just because he's he's le- he's potentially leaving the company. Um, and it's. You know, I can get on board with McIntyre versus Reigns, but my first preference would have been would have been Reigns versus Ambrose. And what we were talking about the other day, Mazda, I love that idea of you know Reigns versus Ambrose. If Reigns wins, he stays. It wins, he stays. And if Ambrose wins, he goes. But obviously, they're not going to do that if Ambrose is in fact leaving. No, no, yeah, yeah. You, you, you can't have him beat Roman Reigns on the exactly, way out. Exactly, on his last... Not, yeah, yeah, not, not if you're... Not, yeah. If it was anyone but Reigns, you know, I'd say you probably could because you could you could work a lot into it. But no, it, it, it's, it's not going to happen, is it? But yeah, I mean, what does this mean for Dean? I, I, I think he'll stay. 
uh, and I think if, if they write him off TV now, I think he's staying. Bizarrely. <laughs> Maz logic. <laughs> Maz logic. Because I, I, I think they'll want you to forget him. I, I, I want. I, I think they'll want you to mm. write him off, and then he will get involved at, uh, at Mania. Well, already they've, I mean, they've that done. Is, that, that, there is precedent with the things like Money in the Bank that that's what they try to do, isn't it? Well, well, also they've done the the, the whole thing where when he announced he was going, well, or when it was it broke that he was going, it was about a week after he dropped the IC belt to Lashley. So in between him rejecting this contract, he's dropped the IC title, having beat Seth at um, TLC. So like straight away, that was a big red flag. It was a bit like, why would they have had him beat Seth? And that that's when it started to be like, oh, okay, like these rumors really. you know, really have got some substance. And then, of course, ever since that came out, he had been jobbing quite consistently yeah. to um, to people. And then suddenly the Shield reunite, and he's back to being booked competitively again. Even the match, obviously, lost with McIntyre. He, you know, it was a real proper match. Um, so I think whatever the situation is, they're trying to make it as uncertain as they can do Um at this point, because there's no doubt if he does choose to resign, there's massive potential to do something incredibly interesting with it, as they did with Punk. Not in the same storyline as Punk, obviously, because we don't want some just random retread, but they certainly have got potential to do something interesting with it. And given Dean's talent for doing interesting things with storylines, like they could have something electric on their hands. Yeah, and I mean, I have to say, it was only sort of seeing them hug, seeing the three S.H.I.E.L.D. boys hug at Fastlane um, and do the fist bump. And there was a wonderful moment where if you watch Dean, he sort of points at his fist and it looks like he mouth something like this is what it's all about. Um, and it was only through, you know, after that magical moment that I sort of, I realised how much I didn't want to see him go and, and how shit it feels to think that he may not be around in five weeks. Um, and it's, and it's, it's not often, I think, that you get that feeling from it. Like if, you know, if, I don't know, if like AJ Styles left, fine, you know, whatever. Um, and, and you could say that and most of the roster. I think it's that there are very few of any generation that feel absolutely intrinsic to just the course of the company and Ambrose is one of them. And it just, it doesn't feel right to me that he might not be around in five weeks time. So if there's, if there's a, Ever a time that I want WWE to just do whatever it needs to be done to keep him, this is, you know, this is the time. I mean, I think what the the big thing, what I've wondered, you know, there's we don't know why Dean Ambrose doesn't want to sign a new contract. You know, there's lots of speculation out there, you know, but we can't be sure why. You know, you can have a good educated guess as a typical wrestling fan that he's not happy with his direction. You know, lots of people say, Oh, he's going straight to AEW, but you know, nobody, surely nobody knows that, you know, Dean, he might just be burnt out. You know, (laughs) these guys have been, had a long run, you know, in a very prominent position. They're the workhorses of the division. You know, he's had a bit of time at home nursing an injury we we don't we don't know what's going on and you know he's clearly 
not the most conventional person anyway. You know, he's got his own way of doing things. He's clearly not exactly motivated the same way everyone else is, it seems. So, you know, his his very reasons behind not wanting to sign another contract, who knows, you know? There are certain guys in that situation with AEW coming up say, what could be a power play? You know, there are others could be, you know, could be burnt out. There are others saying not happy with his direction. But you can sit here and guess, but but we don't know. So because of that, we don't know what's going to make him stay, if there is anything that can make him stay. Um, but my guess is, looking at that book in WWE, still think that they can make him stay. I do think, backtracking on that heel turn, and I know you two have loved it, but, you know, I've not been a fan of it. And general consensus has been, you know, it's not been very good and not worked very well. And, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think the thing is, I think what I would say about it is I think it worked fine up to TLC, and I think the wheels fell off it quite consider. I mean, even, even I would say the wheels fell off it after TLC because, you know, they kind of, they clearly didn't, have an idea about how they wanted to follow it up. I do think the storyline consistency was there to that point. I just think they, um, then they kind of dropped the ball off that, but yeah, certainly it was a little bit, um, it certainly wasn't what an Ambrose heel turn could have been. And I guess because everyone had been waiting for it for such a long time, what would it look like? Um, I think almost inevitably it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to be something that people kind of, um, I guess, went with. I think that's, you know, I think that's key is that I think people had been had been waiting for it for so long. And then for WWE to have gone the direction they did, which was kind of corny, um, let a lot of people down. Uh and let a lot of because you know Ambrose as John Moxley had made a name for himself as a certain kind of bad guy, um, and even in FCW when he was down there, um, and so to see him not be that version of himself, I think was quite galling. I do feel like a little bit with Seth in the face turn, there was a little bit of a rush judgment, um, but ultimately it 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 struggled to get off the ground uh, and. Uh, I mean, I thought the match TLC was was fabulous. Incidentally, yeah, um, me too. And the false count anywhere match they did on Raw some weeks later was even better. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's there's it's reasonable to say that it didn't quite work as well as it should have done or could have done. Um, but again, I think the way that they wrote themselves out of it in the end with with when Roman came back and whatnot, I think it made sense. And less and, and people shouldn't forget either that WWE leaned into that. They didn't just do it one week. You know, there were a number of segments leading up to that over the weeks on Raw between Dean and Seth that intimated that they were they were going back on on that heel turn. But ultimately, yeah, everything we've everything we've discussed is like I said earlier. You know, you just keep coming back to the same conclusion, which is actually we don't have a clue what's going on. Um, and that it's still 50-50 as to whether he goes or whether he stays. And my heart and soul is, I hope he stays. Oh, yeah, I don't absolutely. Think, I don't think WWE... Uh, I think he leaves a massive gaping hole if he goes. They will, they, they will certainly struggle to fill um, that hole because they don't. what they don't have right now is they don't have 
apart from Ambrose, a Jericho. They don't have somebody that can go up and down the card wherever you need him, and he'll fit in anywhere. I can't think of anyone else that fills that role. Like not, right, not right to, now, not, not to the not to the effectiveness that they, I mean, there are people you could try it with. Um, right. but, Owens but, could probably pull it off. Owens, maybe you know. Um, I think I think there's two or three people that you could try with, but but I agree with Mav in the sense that but yeah, yeah. the precedent is the precedent is there with Dean, and he's very very easy to slot in wherever. Yeah, absolutely. And the the ultimate irony of all of this is that I think it's it's shown what I felt for a long time and what I've said on a number of podcasts over the last few weeks, which is that WWE place more value in him and recognizes value more than the fans do, I think. Well, no, I mean, I think... I think bizarrely subjected to so many narratives that have been unfair on him. But I said this to you before... I've said this to you before, Plano. It's not the fan base. It's a very small group of vocal people who have written stuff in columns. Like, I think it's a bit of a straw man to say the fans don't appreciate him. I would say that that certain people like to be contrary and say that he doesn't work in certain contexts because it became sort of fashionable to do so around 2016. I don't think that if you listen to his reactions over time, I don't think you could say the wider fan base have neglected him. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, I'm, you know, obviously I'm not saying that's the case. What I mean is, is, you know, on, on in, in critical internet circles, um, there has been certainly on, on social media, certainly around LOP, um, you know, a sense. I mean, the the one that I will always come back to is when we did a sort of fancy LOP fancy draft last year. There was a lot of Ambrose isn't a first round pick, um, and he is. He absolutely is. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, obviously, as a big fan of him, but I've never felt like I don't felt like. Um, I mean, I guess I. I mean, I don't listen to that kind of nonsense if it's. I don't sort of tolerate it really, but. I, but yeah, I don't think that he's been neglected by fans, really. I don't think that's something that I, I would say. I think I think certainly that kind of weird period in the summer of 2016, I think that's the time when it became fashionable on the internet to say that, you know, that his title run was a failure just because they booked him against an ice-cold Dolph Ziggler. Um, so, yeah, but other than that, I think... I mean, the company have obviously recognised his importance. And I think in saying that he wants okay. to leave, I think they probably realised as well that they could have used him even better than they have. Because there there was long periods of his career where they haven't utilised him to his fullest potential. You know, between the first Rollins feud and the second one, that was a bit of a um, that was a bit of a black hole. Um, the Jericho stuff was not particularly well written, um, so that you know the, the some of the Wyatt stuff wasn't so good. Um, they obviously decided that because they were going to put Wyatt up, up against the Undertaker that year, they had Dean basically lose the TV portion of that feud quite conclusively to build in particular build Wyatt up. Um, so yeah, there's there've been times when they haven't used him to the best, but also times when they've used him brilliantly, and I think. Uh, if 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 I'm Dean Ambrose, I can understand why he he does. Feel, you know, do you? I want what I've always wondered is, does he want more creative control of his own character? Because there was that report that came out the other week from one of the writers that had been fired, saying, "Oh, he's brilliant. You give him whatever you write, and he'll just deliver it, and he'll do it really well." But there might come a point where he's like, "That's not enough for me." 
but it's all speculation plan, as you say, at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, nevertheless, I think, you know, as we said, a, a brilliant farewell um, for the Shield, if, if that is to be the case, as we say, hopefully not. Hopefully there's another reunion, maybe not for a good while, <laughs> but um, because I think otherwise it loses its impact, doesn't it? I always said they should have left it 10 years before they did it, but... Uh, I mean, I, 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 I think it's fair to say that, that their reunion on Sunday uh, was a, a huge success. And I think that that was shown in the crowd reaction on the night. Of course. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and the, to be fair to WWE, who we've railed on a lot tonight, the, the, the very strong and effective way in which the reunion was written, despite it being done on relatively short notice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the one thing that, you know, really struck me. Like I said, I wasn't a fan of the heel turn. Um, uh, fun, funnily enough, it was that TV match, which was the only positive in there for me, to be honest. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. Um, but yeah, I think it was very easy to go back on. And, you know, bizarrely, it's something that WWE often do without it. But it, it's very easy to put it all down on Dean going mental because Roman had to go, you know. It's it's very easy. And, you know, knowing Dean's character and how volatile it is, you could very easily do that. So, you know, if you do play in to the whole reality era and kayfabe with what's actually going on, you could do exactly that. Yeah. I mean, what happens, who knows? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, all right guys. So let's, um, I guess we'll just leave that as a big wide open door and see what happens. And now we'll, we'll kind of wave Seth along fondly as he, as he goes on to battle, uh, goes on to battle Brock Lesnar. Um, all right. So I think, uh, that should do us for our kind of fast lane analysis. So next week, we're going to go back to our, our Match of the Decade series. Uh, originally slated to be a two-part thing, but we only actually got to the end of 2013 on the first one. Um, <laughs> so it, it may end up being a three-parter. So we may go 14 to 16 um, next week and then perhaps uh, do, do the rest um, after that. But obviously what we did was we talked through um, what we thought were the uh, the matches that stood out from uh, the first sort of three or four years of the decade. And we'll do the same for the kind of middle portion um, next week. So that should be a fun trip down memory lane. Obviously, in the meantime, you can listen to the rest of LFP Radio's shows um, from the dock on a Sunday through to Sandman on a Monday through to uh, the One Nation Radio Boys and the Global Impact Boys on a Tuesday plan with Seed on a Wednesday. And then uh, Thursday, of course, you've got Imp with the Perfect 10. I believe he's welcoming uh, Burning My Light uh, back to the show on a regular basis. Um, and then we're back on Fridays, of course. Uh, you can also read... Uh, all three of our, our columns. So uh, Maz on a on a Saturday with the uh, the LOP. Sort of my column. Well, you're, you're reclaiming it from a drunken Irishman this week. Uh, so yes. uh, the LOP Power Ten will, will obviously be around the Saturday plan. We'll do his Sunday roundup on a Sunday, and also this week from me uh, already on the site as of uh, as of the time you're listening to this will be the um, collab with Plan and Sasam looking at what. A single WWE roster with no brand split, uh, no NXT, no 205, 
uh, might look like if you were to just kind of take uh, a, a set number of wrestlers for each kind of section of the card um, and we're going to sort of break down what we chose and what we thought um, yeah and you can even vote for which which uh, roster you like the most so uh, that is the uh, the plugs for the week that's been the right side of the pond so from the returning part-time Mazza and from the uh, full-time uh, every pay-per-view and every podcast on uh, Lords of Pain plan uh, and myself it's goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.